Well, we are in the books of First and Second Samuel this morning, if you want to turn there in your Bibles. The Bible sometimes encourages God's people to sing a new song to the Lord. Psalm 98 says, sing to the Lord a new song, for he has done marvelous things. There's certainly nothing wrong with old songs. In fact, old songs have their own specialness, especially when they're good. And for that matter, new songs are not good simply because they're new. There are a lot of new songs that are bad. But there is a time to write a new song and to sing a new song because we desperately need to express our present thoughts and feelings about an inexhaustible God. Or because God has done something new, something fresh. Our God isn't just the God of days of old. He's the God of today, and he's still at work. And so we can be encouraged to sing, whether old songs or new songs, we can be encouraged to sing by giving careful attention to some songs in the Bible that were at one time new songs because they were born out of a new thing God had done. We're in a short series around this Christmas season that we're calling Uh, Songs of Salvation. And we're not going to that big book of songs in the Bible, the book of Psalms, but we're going to those songs that that sort of arise from within the narrative portions of God's Word. That is, the storytelling parts of God's Word. Something big would happen in the story and in the personal experience of those in the story. And it would seem that God's people often stopped what they were doing. They stopped everything to write a new song, to learn it together, and to sing it together. So last Sunday, we looked at the first recorded song in the Bible, in Exodus 15, which is often called Moses' song. And then this past Wednesday at our Lord's Supper service, many of you were with us for that, we looked at Deborah's song in Judges chapter 5. And today we're going to take in two more songs, these in 1st and 2nd Samuel. As we move our way through the Bible in the months of December and January along this theme of songs of salvation, as we, in this week of December, know that we're moving towards the advent of Christ's coming, which we call Christmas. At this point in 1st and 2nd Samuel, we're still a thousand years away from the birth of Christ. But that's where this stuff is headed. That's where we're going. That's what we'll see. And we know that from 1st and 2nd Samuel in part, in large part, through the two songs that we find within the stories. Songs or poetry within the narrative parts of the Bible actually arise like the Sandia Mountains do on Albuquerque. If you're traveling from the west side to the east side, well, at first there's just a a whole lot of suburban sameness and beige-ness. And eventually you get to a valley with some green and, and a river runs through it. And if you keep going, you'll... You'll have a slight incline and ascent, but it's still pretty even until, boom, there's a mountain. It didn't surprise you because you could see it coming, but it sort of arises from the surface. 
And that mountain here in Albuquerque somewhat defines our city. It provides a, a visual compass for whenever we travel about the city. And similarly are these poetry sections or song sections within the narratives of the Old Testament. They, they arise, they, they give definition, they give clarity. You might be tempted in your Bible reading to be reading story, story, story. Get to something like Exodus 15, which is a song about the story, and you think, I already read the story. What's next? And you skip the portion of poetry that's before you. But, but don't skip it. This is meant to be interpreted. This is an interpretive key for the stories that are on either side. It's meant as an exclamation point in the storytelling, both for those who are in the story and for us who are reading it and joining them in that praise. So in First and Second Samuel, which, by the way, uh, was at first just one book, in the Hebrew Bible, it's just called Samuel. There are two key poems or songs, one at the beginning and one at the end, and so they form what we call bookends. They tell us this is what the whole thing is about. They're strategically placed and heavily related. The first is Hannah's song in 1 Samuel 2, and the second is David's song in 2 Samuel 22. We're going to look at each of those. And then at the end, we'll briefly consider how those two songs look both backwards and forwards. Uh, we'll consider how they relate to us today and even how they relate to Christmas time. Let's start by reading 1 Samuel 2, 1 through 10, Hannah's song or prayer. Hannah prayed and said, My heart exalts in the Lord. My horn is exalted in the Lord. My mouth derides my enemies because I rejoice in your salvation. There is none holy like the Lord. There is none besides you. There is no rock like our God. Talk no more so very proudly. Let not arrogance come from your mouth. For the Lord is a God of knowledge and by him actions are weighed. The bows of the mighty are broken, but the feeble bind on strength. Those who were full have hired themselves out for bread, but those who were hungry have ceased to hunger. The barren has borne seven, but she who has many children is forlorn. The Lord kills and brings to life. He brings down to Sheol and raises up. The Lord makes poor and makes rich. He brings low and he exalts. He raises up the poor from the dust. He lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with princes and inherit a seat of honor. For the pillars of the earth are the Lord's, and on them he has set the world. He will guard the feet of his faithful ones, but the wicked shall be cut off in darkness. For not by might shall a man prevail. The adversaries of the Lord shall be broken to pieces. Against them he will thunder in heaven. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. Well, this is Hannah's song. And in Hannah's song, there are at least a few angles for us to consider. The first being Hannah's plight in prayer. Hannah's plight in prayer. This is by way of background, actually, to her praise. For Samuel began in chapter 1 by introducing us to Hannah and her, well, 
her unhealthy family, you could say. Not Hannah's fault, of course. But the problem is certainly felt by Hannah. She's a suffering woman in a difficult situation. In a culture where a woman's significance was often measured by her ability to produce children, Hannah found herself barren. She was devastated by that, as many of you know yourself. And to complicate matters, her husband took on a second wife, and the second wife produced children for him, and the second wife mocked Hannah routinely for her childlessness. That's her plight. That's her problem. That's her trouble. Not just barrenness, but ridicule and perceived lowliness. Her grief is undeniable. But so is her gaze upon the Lord amidst the grief. Her eyes are on the Lord, and so she prays to God about her trouble. She's persistent in prayer. She's passionate about prayer. And she's desperate. That's why she prays. And she prays for a son. But as becomes evident soon, she's not actually just praying for a son. She is praying for a son, but she's praying for God to step in. She's praying for God to move. She's praying for God to work. She's praying for God to, to get busy, dare we say. You probably can't spot it in chapter 1 alone, but as the story unfolds, it soon becomes clear that this isn't just a story of one barren woman who's sad about her infertility, but her barrenness is likely emblematic of barrenness in the nation. Not physical barrenness, spiritual barrenness. Israel as a nation in these days is spiritually barren. Dried up, dead, not working, not moving along. Have any doubts about that? Well, you just read on in chapter 2 and you'll find these priests who are worthless men. It's a bad priesthood, bad leadership. That bad leadership goes back to the days of Judges, which came just before the opening pages of 1 Samuel. And in Judges, the recurring theme, stated three times at least... And as the last verse of the whole book is this. In those days there was no king in Israel and everyone did what was right in his own eyes, in her own eyes, in their eyes, not God's eyes. Now Hannah is a rare exception to that self-willed disobedience of the nation. She's of the godly remnant. But she knows the land is barren as she experiences it herself and she prays and asks God to act to work and God hears her prayer secondly God's provision and power are some themes we can think about his provision and power he provides a son to Hannah he's named Samuel because she asked of the Lord as you may know she gives him back to the Lord it says in chapter one and by that it means that she commissioned her son as a child to be professionally employed in the temple as a, a kind of priest and certainly as a prophet, as chapter 3 reveals. And somehow, early on, we'd have to say prophetically so, as she leans on Bible promises of old, but begins to see them 
unfolding before her very eyes, she somehow knows that this isn't just about her. It isn't just about her son. It isn't just about infertility. It isn't even just about answered prayer. Now, I, I don't want to minimize those things. I don't at all want to minimize the grief and frustration that a couple can deal with in infertility. But neither do I want to give any kind of false hope from this passage as if those struggling with infertility can just lean on Hannah and do what she did. Pray fervently, weep often, and God will for sure give you a natural-born child. Well, he may, and he may not. I don't know. But listen to Hannah carefully. You who are infertile and you who have some other difficulty, some thorn in the flesh. Somehow she knew that this son was a sign. A sign of something much bigger. God was on the move. God was stepping in. God was coming down. Notice that her praise begins on a personal level. We see first-person pronouns in the first couple of verses. But notice she moves from what God has done for her to what God is and what he does in general and what he's doing in the world now. The bows of the mighty are broken. The feeble bind on strength. Those who are full, they have no need of God. They're full. They've hired themselves out for bread. Those who were hungry, on the other hand, have ceased to hunger. She envisions a great reversal coming. An upheaval is around the corner. If for a time it seemed like God had hit the pause button on the progress of his plan, she believes he is now hitting the play button and it's about to get loud. If it seemed for a time that the good guys always lost, the bad guys always win. Well, God is about to turn over the tables as the chapters unfold in 1 Samuel. God was going to vindicate the oppressed, the humble, the godly, and the prayerful. And he was going to tear down the empty, the shallow, the, the fake, the proud, and the seemingly powerful. That's God's provision and his power on display for Hannah and through Hannah for the whole world to see. And not just see, to sing about. Thirdly, notice Hannah's praise and prophecy. Now the whole thing really is praise, but look especially at the beginning. Hannah prayed and said, my heart exalts. It's happy in praising God. It exalts in the Lord, my horn. Really, the, the horn is the symbol of strength and victory. My horn is exalted in the Lord. There is none holy like the Lord. There is none besides you. There is no rock like our God. Now, by the way, let me just say in passing, in case you wonder, is this a song? You might have noticed it said Hannah prayed. It didn't say Hannah sung. Why am I saying at times that it's a, a song? Well, we don't know for sure, but it is poetry for sure. And so it was most likely sung. 
It also follows the same pattern and leans on the same language of songs that were explicitly songs sung earlier in the Bible, like Exodus 15 and Judges 5. Now, I can't imagine that the Hebrews had any use for poetry that wasn't sung, as if this is simply the the reflections of a contemplative poet girl, you know, an emo indie girl with her journal writing poems just for herself. No, this is intended to go public. This is intended to be didactic. And to be didactic, to be teaching, it would be sung so that it would be memorized. Notice that her praise doesn't completely shy away from herself. As I said, there are first-person pronouns. And she expresses up front what she thinks and how she feels and what she's going to do. But notice also that the focus is on God, not herself, and not her feelings. I suspect that many American churches could learn from this observation. Many praise songs written today celebrate more than anything else how we feel and what we're going to do. I'll pick on just one, one example. I apologize if it is your favorite. You know that song, I Could Sing of Your Love Forever? Which doesn't actually take much time at all to talk about God's love, to think about God's love in any detail. Instead, the focus is on my singing about his love forever. A better title might be I could sing forever about me singing about your love. (laughs) And clearly the emphasis is on the wrong syllable at that point. It's not about me, not my singing. So let's learn from Hannah's God-centered, God-saturated, God-focused praise. She talks about who God is, what he's like, what he does, and what he's going to do. Notice the last two verses, 9 and 10, are in the future tense, and hence they're especially prophetic. He will guard the feet of his faithful ones, but the wicked shall be cut off in darkness, for not by might shall a man prevail. The adversaries of the Lord shall be broken to pieces. Against them he will thunder in heaven. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. And notice this, he will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. King? What king? There's no king of Israel in these days. Who is the anointed? We know from earlier in the Bible that there is going to be a king. Genesis 49 foretold of a a lion-like ruler coming from the tribe of Judah and the obedience of the nations would be his inheritance. Deuteronomy 17 gave a, a prescription or a recipe for Israel's ideal future king. When you go into the land and you have a king, your king should be like X, Y, and Z, not A, B, and C. Judges hinted at the need for a king with that repeated theme. There was no king in Israel in those days, so everyone did what was right in their own eyes. Judges highlights a a leadership problem. And we also know from the book of Ruth, if you would, turn back there. It's just 
one book over in your Bibles, with probably one or two pages. In Ruth chapter 4, this set within the time of the judges, here at the end of Ruth, there were some rumblings in a little town called Bethlehem. Verse 11, see Bethlehem there? What was going on in Bethlehem? Well, you know the story if you know Ruth at all. Boaz redeemed Ruth and she bore a son, it says in verse 13 of chapter 4. Verse 14 says he's going to be a redeemer, renowned in Israel. Verse 15 says of him he'll be a restorer of life. Whoa, that's big. What's he going to do? Well, actually, not much himself. There's no record of what this son did, except that he had a really important grandkid, David. So look at verse 17 of chapter 4, just the last sentence of it. They named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. And in case you missed it, it's also at the end, verse 22 Here's a short genealogy ending like this. Obed fathered Jesse, and Jesse fathered David. Watch out for David. It'll take another 16 chapters of 1 Samuel before we can really connect the dots between David's name and the unnamed king or anointed that Hannah foresaw. It'll involve in those chapters a a, a time with a, a false start, you could say, when God's people demanded of God that they get a king like the nations have, a certain kind of king, a powerful and impressive one, never mind if he's godly. And that's exactly what God gives them in this man named Saul. It'll be a rough transition Though when David is anointed as king in chapter 16, but not yet appointed as king, Saul refuses to give up his throne and instead fiercely opposes David for another 15 chapters until Saul winds up dead on a battlefield. No fault to David. And even after Saul's death in 1 Samuel 31, you still have a few more chapters into 2 Samuel before all the tribes finally and fully recognize David as their king. Oh, it's a long and windy road to get to David on the throne, but the end is sure. Hannah told us. She prophesied on behalf of the Lord. God had his way. He will put his man on his throne. I think Hannah foresaw, or perhaps just spoke better than she knew, when she not only foresaw the end of a king strengthened by the Lord, but one who was opposed along the way. She envisions God guarding his faithful ones. She envisions a king that needs to be strengthened, and indeed that is the case in the chapters of 1 Samuel. And as we work through 1 Samuel, which we can't today, obviously, there are sermons online for that if you're interested. And if we work our way through 2 Samuel, we begin to come to the end and gain some perspective about what this was all about. So now turn to the end of 2 Samuel, 2 Samuel 22. Let's turn there. Let's see how the story 
ends in a sense. 2 Samuel 22, verse 1, And David spoke to the Lord the words of this song, On the day when the Lord, and if I can insert finally, he finally delivered him from the hand of all his enemies and from the hand of Saul. And what follows is 51 verses of David's celebratory song. Because it's 51 verses, we won't read it all. But let's start by reading some verses at the beginning and then a few verses at the end. Look at verse 2 of 2 Samuel 22. Here's his song. The Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer. My God, my rock in whom I take refuge. My shield and the horn of my salvation. My stronghold and my refuge, my savior. You save me from violence. I call upon the Lord who is worthy to be praised. And I'm saved from my enemies. For the waves of death encompassed me. The torrents of destruction assailed me. The cords of Sheol entangled me. The snares of death confronted me. In my distress, I called upon the Lord. To my God, I called. We could read on. We'll stop there for now. That gives us a taste of the beginning. Let's go to the end and get a sampling there. Look at verse 47. The Lord lives. And blessed be my rock, and exalted be my God, the rock of my salvation, the God who gave me vengeance and brought down peoples under me, who brought me out from my enemies. You exalted me above those who rose against me. You delivered me from men of violence. For this I will praise you, O Lord, among the nations, and sing praises to your name. Great salvation he brings to his king and shows steadfast love to his anointed, to David and his offspring forever. Let me invite you on a little journey on your own sometime in the near future. If you print out Hannah's prayer and David's prayer and allow yourself to put them before you and take a gander, maybe have them on a, something besides a Bible so you can draw notes and scribbles and lines in ways you wouldn't want to do in your Bible. You can compare the beginning of Hannah's prayer with the beginning of David's prayer and find some, well, some similar themes in language. And then compare the ending of Hannah's prayer and the ending of of David's song and you will find again some shared language but also see some things that have changed from beginning to end I'll give you the answer here's what you'll see Hannah and David both began with words like horn salvation enemies and rock Hannah and David both end with God's faithfulness to his king, to his anointed. You might also notice what has changed from one to the other throughout those chapters. When Hannah wrote her song in 1 Samuel 2, she wrote the last couple verses in future tense. Some of this stuff about a king, an anointed, hadn't happened yet, and it was going to happen. Well, David writes of the same things in past tense. They've happened. They've been fulfilled. What Hannah foresaw, David has experienced. What Hannah saw, sung about in an unnamed, really unknown king at that point, 
Well, David knows exactly who it is. It's himself. And so he inserts the king, the anointed, David. It's now a named and known king. So let's get into some particulars of David's song. Notice first David's delight in declaration. Like Hannah, he begins by describing God with great exuberance. He begins with declaration of delight in God. And like Hannah, it's personal. It flows out of experience. But again, like Hannah, the primary focus for David is not on David, but God. It's what God has done. And David marvels at what God has done, especially as he pulls back and remembers the trouble he's gone through. The rescue that God will bring is highlighted and illuminated by the, the darkness of the distress that David experiences. So secondly, consider David's distress and dependence. We've seen that already in verses 5 and 6 and 7. David's distress was described in these cataclysmic ways like like waves of death waves of death encompassing him torrents of destruction assailing him no doubt david knew great severe prolonged and undeserved distress just read the stories for yourself and in those stories of great distress more often than not, David showed great dependence upon the Lord, great faith in his God. He called out to his God again and again, and he was saved. Now, you might notice verse 21 to 31, which we won't take time to read, is a section that seems to say that God did what he did for David because David was righteous, if you read that section on your own later this afternoon or as a family this evening or in your community group later this week, you might scratch your head and say, wait a minute, I thought David was like us Protestants. You know, I thought David was a grace man, not a works man. I thought David wasn't trusting in himself. And here it sounds like God saved him because he was righteous. Well, there are four options here. One is impossible, and the three are possible. One option, the bad one, is to say that David really was perfect, totally, completely. And if you believe that, then you didn't read the story. I mean, he's had some really bad moments, and so that one is not available to us as an option. Another option would be, though, that David was vocationally blameless, that as king, he was pretty darn good. He brought a whole lot of health and healing to the land. That's an option. Another option would be that David essentially, when he says that he's blameless, he means he's been declared righteous. He's been justified. He's a guy who knows his sin, but he also knows what the prophet Nathan said, the Lord has put away your sin. He's a man who's confessed in, in the Psalms, if the Lord counts iniquity, we're all doomed. But with the Lord, there is forgiveness. Maybe there's a hint of that. 
More likely, when David talks about his blamelessness and righteousness in these verses, he's referring to relative righteousness. David was clearly on the side of God. David, when put up against Goliath, well, God likes David, not Goliath. When juxtaposed to Saul, well, Saul's a bad king. David is a pretty good king. Not always good, but he has a relative righteousness. And even with that, we would add this little caveat. And even that relative righteousness was a gift from God. It was God's doing. It was God's gift. It was God's kindness. God put David in these trials and caused David to depend on his God better than almost any one of us. That's David's distress and dependence. And thirdly, we see God's deliverance and destruction. They go together, deliverance and destruction, because David has enemies that are about to clamp down on him and take his very life. David's deliverance necessarily means their destruction. As David wrote in Psalm 3, he prayed there that God would break the teeth of the wicked. And you read that and you think, well, that's really mean. But you think of the enemy as a lion with a fierce, a fierce bite. And when he bites, he doesn't let go. If you're the one in the lion's teeth, it might be wise to pray that God would break the teeth of this lion so that you get out. Deliverance and destruction. Here's how David describes it. Read on, verse 7 in following. We'll pick up in the middle of verse 7. From his temple he heard my voice, and my cry came to his ears. Then the earth reeled and rocked. The foundations of the heavens trembled and quaked because he was angry. Smoke went up from his, <clears throat> from his nostrils and devouring fire from his mouth. Glowing coals flamed forth from him. He bowed the heavens and came down. Thick darkness was under his feet. He rode on a cherub and flew. He was seen on the wings of the wind. He made darkness around him his canopy and thick clouds a gathering of water. Not of the brightness before him, coals of fire flamed forth. We could keep reading. David does go on from there with the same kind of thing. What kind of thing? Well, descriptions of God's deliverances in majestic, poetic, cataclysmic, almost apocalyptic ways. Now, if you read the stories themselves of David's trouble, in God's deliverance, you won't see anything that looks apocalyptic. You will not find God riding on an angel and hurling lightning bolts at his enemies. So why does David talk like that? Well, because God's people have always believed that there are really <clears throat> two realms. Two realms. There's the seen and the unseen. And God in his kindness occasionally just peels back a little corner of the unseen so that we at least know it's there. Like when Daniel is told by an angel, I would have gotten here sooner, but I've been wrestling with a demon for a week. What? What? 
You, you wouldn't have expected that, but now you know that that kind of thing can happen. God is working wonders behind the scenes, even when it looks a little more simple and mundane. You read the stories of First and Second Samuel, and it looks like David's hungry, and so a priest gives him some bread. Saul threw a spear, and David ducked out of the way. David had to get out of town, and he found a cave to go to, and in the cave there was safety, and eventually even fellowship. It doesn't look like God riding on a cherub and hurling lightning bolts or rip, ripping open, uh, ripping open the sea. It's crazy. But that's what David says because he knows this is the God who does this kind of stuff. So he can praise God with extravagant language even when answers to prayer and God's protection and his provision at times appear rather human, rather simple, rather mundane and ordinary. We should do the same. Let's lastly think about how these songs, Hannah's and David's, look back and ahead. Of course, Hannah leaned on those songs that came before in the Bible, like Moses's and Deborah's. She leaned on and trusted in the promises of old as she began to see them. Well, she hoped she would see who knows how long she lived, but she believed God was about to start doing them. And David looked back to Hannah's song to see what God had promised through her. And he looked back through his own life to see what God had done based on what he said. And he concluded, verse 32, who is God but the Lord? Who is a rock except our God? This God is my strong refuge, and he has made my way blameless. Hannah envisioned God's praise and justice going to the ends of the earth. I'm sure David in some ways thought that that had been fulfilled in his own time and through his own life. And yet, from another angle, we can say, even at the height of David's empire. We're talking about a postage stamp of beauty and glory and peace on the face of the globe. It's not to the ends of the earth. It's to the next doors, nationally and politically and geopolitically speaking. How does David speak like he does? How does Hannah speak like she does? The ends of the earth Remember, David said he wants to praise God among the nations. Well, at that point in time, he praised him among some of the nations. But now that we have globes to look at and satellites through which we can see the world, we know how big this place is. David can speak of steadfast love for the king forever, forever. And if you know the rest of the story, you, you know... The next king is going to bring in more glory, but he won't be as good. Solomon, David's son, will see the temple built and the city swell with riches and people and glory and blessing. And he'll be more wicked than his dad was. 
And within a generation, the kingdom will be split in two, never to be repaired. In some ways, David is a little too optimistic here because there's more to the story. It doesn't end with this David. There's another David coming. And so from this point on, the Bible continues to look back to the first David while looking ahead to hopefully another David. God promised to this first David that his line and his heritage and his throne would last forever and nothing would threaten it. And yet, as it plays out, there are times where there is no one on the throne of David, no king in Israel or Judah. It's all in ruins. And yet the promises just keep growing. We could go to Jeremiah 23, God saying, I'll raise up for David a righteous branch. We could go to Isaiah 9, the one born in Bethlehem. Well, of his peace, there's going to be no end. On the throne of his father David, he will reign forever. The promises grow and grow and grow until we get to the New Testament. And Matthew 1 begins with a genealogy, a genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David. This is the question in the Gospels. Are you the son of David? Could you be the son of David? This is the confession of blind Bartimaeus. Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. This is the centerpiece of most of the sermons in the book of Acts. Acts 2 and Acts 4 and Acts 7 and Acts 13 all argue that the promises given to David... They're fulfilled in David's greater son, Jesus of Nazareth, who's also son of God. This is where Paul's magnum opus, the book of Romans, begins and ends. He begins by talking about a gospel of Jesus who was promised in the scriptures, the descendant from David according to the flesh, declared to be the son of God by his resurrection. In Romans 15, when the Apostle Paul wants to give an Old Testament argument for the spread of the gospel among the nations, and when he wants to explain this thing of Jesus, who he is and why he came, he quotes David's song. He quotes from David's song, that little bit. I will sing your praises among the nations. He says, there, Paul says, there, that's proof. Jesus came for this reason, so that God's praise would spread among the peoples or nations and that they would glorify God for that salvation. So I know this has been a, a thick message. This has been a thick Bible study. If you're not a Christian, I don't know what you think, but you're, you're probably not too impressed. You probably think this is something like Russell Crowe in a beautiful mind, drawing lines all over the place and connecting newspaper clippings to that thing. And Well, I hope that I'm not crazy. I think the Bible is clear, and these dots do connect. And I invite you to explore the Bible with us to see how it connects, to, to, for you to see that there is a story here. And there's no other, quote-unquote, holy book like this one. Some of them say, don't do this and do this. Some teach a thing, like chi, 
or, or a higher plane of reality. But none piece together a majestic, glorious story like this with one central figure bringing it all to pass. I pray you'd know the Savior. Let us know how we can help you today in knowing him more. And if you do know the Savior, and if you know this mercy that Romans 15 talks about, then glorify God for it. Let us join the example of those of old by singing thoughtfully and passionately and personally and corporately, by looking back to what he's done, by looking around to what he's done for us, and by looking forward to what he will do. Christian, when you look back on your life thus far, whether 13 years are in the rearview mirror or 93 years, what do you see? How would you summarize it? What has your life been? Some here might say, well, it started out promising, got good grades, got into a decent college, and then this one thing happened, and it's been derailed ever since. Another might say, well, it was fine until she left me. Another might say, we had great hopes and plans for our kids, and our parenting was pretty darn good, and they went astray. And I'm a little bitter with God ever since that happened. I can understand something of how hard that must be. Well, no, I can't. But I do want to just commend to you this man David and his model. He's a man who suffered much. I think if we said, David, look back, tell us what you see. Describe it for us. If I can paraphrase him, I think he'd say, God delivers. Time and time again, he delivers. My God comes through. My trouble was great. And let me take a few verses to tell you a little bit about how bad it was. But his deliverance was greater. And let me take a few dozen verses to tell you how great it was. In fact, let me sing it. I want to be that kind of man. As we come to the end of 2018, it might be useful for us to sort of do an exercise. Maybe you dare to write a song, a song which looks back. You don't, have to, you don't have to share it with anyone. It doesn't have to rhyme. You don't even have to sing it or put it to music. But maybe you would just, as carefully as you can, as thoughtfully as you can, look back and write something like a 2 Samuel 22 for your life. Let's reflect more on what God has done and how glorious it has been and how he has got us safely through even in the muck and the mundane. Let's pray. Oh Lord, we thank you for your grace to save and we thank you for your daily grace to sustain. We thank you for your provision and your protection and your presence in our lives. You have given us every reason to sing your praises, and we pray for more of it. We pray in 2019 to notice more of what you're doing. 
Give us eyes to see. In 2019, Lord, show us more of your glory. Remind us more of what you have done in history and in our lives and as we see in the lives of others. May Jesus Christ and his glorious reign in this world, his fulfillment of the promises and his return to cap them all off, may these be enough for us. May we rejoice in all that he is for us, all that he has done for us and all that he will do. We pray in his name.